All right, there we go. So everybody, uh, that will do it. Welcome, one and all, to our week daily uh, hike without the hike. Uh, normally this uh, 10 kilometer trip or thereabouts, roughly speaking, would take in the neighborhood of over two hours to do on foot, depending on how the weather conditions and your own physical ability, but we will do it in about half that, a little over one hour, so should include everything you'd normally get on such a such an adventure except for all the sweating and exertion that comes from such physical activity so that should help keep us all minty fresh for the rest of the day which is always a good thing but uh but while we're together again for something in the neighborhood of 60 minutes we'll discover for ourselves what makes the tall grass prairie uh unique and special and therefore worthy of our collective efforts to uh, preserve, protect, and uh, defend it. Because there's nothing in the American Constitution that requires there to be a National Park Service or a tall grass prairie. Nothing except for a vague four-word phrase in the preamble, promote the general welfare. So it does indeed fall to us, we the people, which does also fall in the preamble, to, uh, to promote the general welfare to the, to the best of our individual abilities. So well done thus far, just showing up today. That's pretty good. But before we dive into the park story, let's kind of drop in on its backstory here a little bit. Uh, the park itself was established by Act of Congress as the 370th unit of the National Park Service on November 12, 1996. And it stands out like all national parks do for what it does and how it does it. Uh, number one, this is the first national park area set up specifically to protect and preserve and defend grass for its own sake. There ought to be a catchy Latin phrase to commemorate that. I'll get to work on that, give me a few minutes. But it's also unique in how it goes about this mission. And that'll become very obvious here in about three and two and one. Right there with that last little rumble that lets us know we have left public land behind us. Uh, currently, we the people own 33 acres roughly of this national park, one third of 1%. So the remaining 10,861 acres are 99. 7% of the park is owned by a nonprofit group. Currently, that is the Nature Conservancy. But in 1994, it was a group called the National Park Trust, who, at the request of Senator, U.S. Senator from Kansas, Nancy Landon Casabon Baker, uh, purchased this ranch in the hopes of one day establishing a national park upon it as a model for the nation, as uh, the senator put it. Um, when the park was dedicated and that mission was accomplished again 1996 the two groups worked side by side establishing many of the activities we know and love today like this bus ride among many others and then in 2005 the National Park Trust pretty much said well folks it's been real uh, but our mission is accomplished we've done what we've set out here to do at the park uh, other parks need our help, so uh, some other group 
needs to step up long term alongside the National Park Service. And that's when the Nature Conservancy enters the picture. Uh, they are uh, no strangers to this line of work. They've been active worldwide since 1951 doing this very kind of land, water, animal, nature preservation thing. And then in uh, 2000, yeah, 2005 again, that's when they uh, took on this property from the National Park Trust. So uh, they've been very active uh, in Kansas, most notably about an hour's drive to the north at a place called Conza Prairie Biological Research Station. And that mouthful of the name gives you an idea what they do up there with Kansas State University. And it is not bus rides. They, uh, they fill the hours up there deep in the evidence-based world, gathering raw empirical data about the, uh, the inner mechanisms of the tall grass prairie. And in order to do that effectively, uh, people are kind of kept, uh, kept to the outside with only a few areas that have any real kind of public access. But that's not really the MO up there anyway. It's an outdoor living laboratory uh, up there near Manhattan, Kansas. But that in turn gives uh, places like this a niche to thrive in because not only do we do a fair amount of our own research and restoration and demonstration and the like, we pile on top of that a whole lot of public access and public educational opportunities. Perhaps more kind of one-on-one, uh, do-it-yourself kind of contact with the tall grass prairie than you get anywhere in Kansas. I mean, if you want to walk around in the grass, this is where you go. And that puts us right up there with some of the top tall grass destinations on the continent. So not bad for flyover country. And now that we're on top of the hill here, you can kind of see what we're all attempting to achieve here together. And that is the continued protection and preservation of a small portion of a vanishing ecosystem. Now, tall grass in North America shares the fate of grasslands around the world in that they are perhaps the most humanly altered ecosystems on the planet. Just to underscore this uh, fact, um, more of the Florida Everglades remain intact as a percentage of the whole than what you'll find remaining today of North America's tall grass prairies. And that's astonishing, really, when you think about how much tall grass covered North America at one time. Something like 170 million acres, which is roughly the size of Texas. So covering a good chunk of the Great Plains, but it's been whittled down over time to something like 4% uh, of its original size. So roughly the size of uh, Hawaii the Hawaiian Islands. So so what happened? What happened to that other 96%? Do we lose it or misplace it? Or is there a deep state conspiracy out there going on that I should be aware of? And I'm, I'm like, no, nope, sorry to disappoint you. I wish there were actually, that would be a far more interesting story. But the truth is, as it often is, far more mundane. We are basically eating the tall grass prairie, transforming it, converting it to suit human needs. So, uh, so because basically, if you like to eat, and that's kind of a thing that most life forms have in common, they consume resources, 
but as far as humans go, if you like to eat, you've got a connection to grass already because if you eat it, there's probably a grass connection in there somewhere. So it's not necessarily a right or wrong, up or down kind of question. It's more of a question of conscience, one that has to be reckoned with from generation to generation. But we are fortunate here in Kansas to have more intact tall grass prairie than you'll find anywhere else in North America, at least two thirds of the remaining 4%, which is pretty nice because we are certainly lacking for Grand Tetons and Grand Canyons here in Kansas, but the one thing we are not lacking is Grand Prairie on a horizon to horizon landscape level. One of the few areas on the continent where you can get this kind of impression. And a lot of things go into making that a reality and we'll encounter them while we're together. But they all basically boil down to a single word. That word is ecology, the, uh, which is a new word in the English language. Uh, coined in the 1870s from Greek roots. The Greek word for home and surroundings, that would be ekos, matched up with the uh, Greek suffix for study, that would be ology. You put the two together, ekos, ology, and you get the word ecology in English, the study of your home and surroundings. And that's exactly what ecology seeks to do, gets to know our homes a little bit better. So, and all the many myriad interconnections that go on then to weave the web of life here on Earth. And the first of these relationships I like to bring out is one we don't see very easily, but it just goes to show that just because you're small, seemingly insignificant, or content to do your best work behind the scenes, doesn't mean you're not also very, very important. And this particular relationship is the geologic one. Uh, which is quite literally the foundation of the Flint Hills themselves, uh, which are, ironically enough, made not of flint, but limestone and shale. Laid down long ago, no matter how you want to measure the passage of time, because Einstein is correct in that, in that time is a variable, passing at different rates, depending on your relative frame of reference and point of view. But, um, but the uh, scientists will go back to a period they call the Permian period, when this area was covered by water at various times. And as the water would recede, you would get organic material building up on the surface, which eventually became shale when the waters returned and started depositing the calcium and silica-bearing remnants of marine plants and animals and algae and the like, and that eventually layered up into the limestone uh, with flint kind of spicing up the limestone. So we get this layered effect, limestone shale, limestone shale with flint again spicing up the limestone. And as you look around the, the panorama in front of us, you can kind of already hopefully begin to detect some of that layering going on. I mean, we got definitely down this eroded valley. You can probably pick out some of the layers just beneath the soil surface. You might begin to pick up some of the differential erosion over here on the left side. But you'll also notice as you scan the horizon a, a lack of trees, except in very specific areas where there's more uh, moisture to work with. That's one of the many things playing against tree growth 
but those very conditions make this area ideal for tall grass and wildflower growth which have been nursing and nurturing life in the Flint Hills including human life for hundreds maybe even thousands of years so why after all that exposition and description do we still insist on calling this area the Flint Hills well even though this area was known by known to Europeans thanks to uh, Spanish-speaking colonial explorers as early as the middle 1500s it wasn't until the early 1800s almost three centuries later before the area has the name got the name Flint Hills from an English-speaking American of course Zebulon Pike 1806 documenting in his journals that for several days he and his party were traveling through rough hills of Flint and that's been the name on this area ever since it's a takes affects about a quarter of the state starts about a hundred miles north near the Nebraska border extends uh, southward soaking up the space most of it between Salina and Topeka Kansas it uh, narrows down to the west of Emporia to the east of Wichita Kansas juts into the Osage Native Nation within the American state of Oklahoma where they're called the Osage Hills but you throw them all together and you have an area of intact tall grass prairie that is over three times the size of Yellowstone National Park and I and that's a wonderful comparison I think because number one it highlights the unassailable fact that most of the intact tall grass prairie that remains in North America falls outside of any sort of public protected boundary and so when you do leave the public protected boundaries here at the here at the park and go out exploring elsewhere in the Flint Hills you'll discover that what's outside the park is remarkably similar to what's inside the park it's a nice little uh, setup we got going here ecologically speaking a four-legged relationship I like to call the legs or the pillars of the tall grass prairie and they come to us in the form of moisture fire grazing and then the human element the wild card the fourth leg which we can no longer afford to ignore now moisture we get in the neighborhood of 35 maybe 38 inches of of collected uh, precipitation a year but you never know what you're going to get it's measured out over a 50 year average so you can have periods of drought and flood and everything in between so that um so what that means since there is such a fundamental that fundamental variability in that fundamental force that has fundamental effects upon the ecosystem basically cleansing away the plants and the animals and yes the people who are unable to cope with that kind of situation leaving behind those who can who then go on to uh, strengthen the ecosystem so it's all very academic from our from our relatively comfy uh, circumstances here but it is all too real when it is your life and livelihood being cleansed away again just another thing to reckon with not a not a yes or no kind of answer to a question like that and there's a, a buffalo over there about nine o'clock on the horizon there so uh, but then you throw fire and grazing on top of that now fire is of tremendous benefit out here although at first glance it generally doesn't sound beneficial in most places it's an agent of destruction but out here it is an agent of rebirth because it it literally rakes away the uh, previous year's growth 
which will soon be shed by all of these uh, all of these plants they will shed what's on the surface very similar to how a tree will shed its leaves shortly and then all of that thatch eventually builds up and forms a pretty in, a pretty solid roof upon the landscape and so once all that gets burned away sunshine and moisture can penetrate deep into the ground and that's where the real action is in the roots now we uh, three quarters of the of prairie plants most of them are underground where you will never see them so we're only seeing the top quarter of the plant um, and one cubic yard of big blue stem sod can have 20 miles of root material within it binding the soil together like steel and concrete forming a sponge that absorbs moisture especially in the spring once uh, generally that's the hot that's the high time for fire uh, moisture soaks into the ground kickstarts the growing process and then the grazers show up historically it would have been elk and buffalo and pronghorn migrating their way to the rich green grasses these days cattle are shipped by truck into these areas to to not only carry the grazing responsibilities but also form the economic backbone of the region and so uh, and so both of these uh, life forms grazers and grasses live together the grazers of course have the stomach for this sort of thing being ruminants and all that and then the grasses far from being burdened by all of these challenges are strengthened by them like very much like we humans we are only as strong as the challenges we face on a daily basis and as long as all the challenges are checked and balanced with each other everything kind of remains evenly balanced but if one force begins to dominate and dictate over the others well that's when imbalances emerge in an ecosystem and ecosystems don't like that there's a very specific reason why they don't call them ego systems that would be very easy for us if it were an ego system that's what got us into this situation we're in it's called an ecosystem for a very specific reason ecosystems are not concerned with the specifics of life or its expression only with maintaining the balance of that expression and whether or not we human beings will be able to make a living as a species in the new balance of life forming around the planet is a wide open question that many are finally now beginning to reckon with so and it's not a moment too soon either now here we are um, about five minutes worth of moments away from the geographic high point of the park one of the highest points in the Flint Hills is just in front of us and it's a good place to ruminate uh, deep thinking if you're of a mind and a suggestion I like to throw out is one that's uh, big in ecological circles or really anywhere uh, relationships are found uh, you may have heard it you may have heard the phrase uh, strength is found in diversity I uh, like that you never go wrong with that kind of thinking that's a very good phrase I like to however rephrase it slightly surviving adversity through diversity because that kind of helps elevate the phrase out of the cliche cat poster kind of world and puts it right into the what's in it for me real world which as much as we like to tell ourselves otherwise that's where we live day to day what's in it for me what am I gonna get out of this how is this going to benefit my life 
And well, well, in this case, it's very similar to, to having a good set of tools at home, in your car, in your head for that matter, knowledge and experience. That means you can improvise, you can adapt, you can overcome a great many unknown unknowns that might be coming your way. Um, emergencies rarely announce themselves uh, beforehand. But if you get a little too comfy and complacent or, or kind of prideful in what you've accomplished, uh, when the real crisis comes along, you wind up realizing all you have at your fingertips is a hammer. And then everything and everyone looks like a nail. So not a good solution, especially in ecological situations. Um, but never fear, we got a good set of tools in terms of plant and animal life. Grasslands are some of the most diverse ecosystems on Earth in terms of plant and animal life. We have 70 species of grasses alone out here. Big blue stem, little blue stem, Indian grass, and switchgrass being the dominant four. And then probably four to five hundred species of non-grass, non-woody flowering plants called forbs. You can call them wildflowers. And then feeding on that are or at least three to four hundred species of animals like reptiles, amphibians, mammals, birds, fish, that sort of thing. And then over a thousand species of insects and literally probably hundreds of thousands, if not millions of different life forms, bacterial, microbial, living in the, living in the soil itself. And they all remarkably enough get along with one another uh, taking, by taking only what they need and by giving back only what they can they wind up creating the self-sustaining community of life we got all around us here. Which leads to the big question, right up there with where's the buffalo, is like, where is the tall grass? I've been very patient with your efforts to educate me, but you can knock it off now and just show me the tall grass. And I'm like, well, number one, you've always been there. You've always, this is, you've always been in the tall grass, but fortunately, uh, the where and the when are one and the same. So you can see some big blue stem out there right now giving you the Vulcan salute. There you go. Or rock and roll forever, whatever it floats your boat. And the, the Indian grass is that wispy uh, golden seed head there. But if you're still insistent upon writing a letter to someone, feel free. Just uh, include in that letter, change the name of that park, why don't you? The tall in the fall grass. National Park and Preserve because that answers that question right now and gives you a good insight into the ecology of the situation out here. The grasses, they do not even wake up until mid-May and they start the slow steady growth, their slow steady pattern of growth topping out in the autumn time, September and October. And that is a very good thing because that then encourages the vast majority of plant life most of which do not mature at four or five feet high. Many of them are far shorter, probably less than 12 inches. And if you look at that, not just look beyond the tall grass, look beyond the, the beautiful stem there and kind of look about a foot below, you'll see a dense uh, growth, a lot of growth of, uh, of just the grass itself, the blades, the leaves of grass gathering the sunshine energy a very dense forest of grass there and if you were trying to gather sunshine as a short stubby plant in the midst of all that well well good luck because uh, you're not going to get much sun so instead 
they wind up separating from each other. They live in the same space by not competing head-to-head -head with one another, embodying an idea that you might find in many indigenous cultures and Eastern philosophies that the, the most noble and honorable of victories are found in the battles that never have to be fought. I like that idea, try to embody that, uh, especially when I'm trying to find a parking space at Walmart. But it does uh, kind of aim a little back toward a cliche. Uh, it does, but it's not a cliche, just like bragging. It ain't a cliche if you can back it up. And we back it up out here on a daily basis. The vast majority of uh, plant and animal relationships are intact with each life form doing what it does best when it can do it best and in doing so they wind up sharing what would otherwise be a limited amount of resources so all right now here we are on top of the hill you if uh if you want to stick around by the side of the bus i've got a few more things i can throw at you here otherwise feel free to explore around the bus i'll get to your questions uh momentarily here so 